This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're going deep down into Dover Castle's Cold War history. In the early 1960s, this site is exceedingly secret. Very, very few individuals knew about the actual role and purpose of these sites in the 1960s. We'll hear why this section of the castle's secret war tunnels was called the Dumpy Level. When they dug it, they were tipping all the chalk out onto the Napoleonic castle dump. So my understanding of why it's called Dumpy is because it's built on the level of the castle dump. And we'll tell you how you can see these tunnels for yourself. Thanks again for joining us on another journey back in time. If you just found us, welcome, and don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week we've travelled to Dover Castle in Kent, in the southeast of England. It's a location that's steeped in history, and I'm not just referring to the sheer drop of those famous white cliffs. Because this vast stone fortification, high above Dover's busy port and overlooking the English Channel, actually has a few secrets buried deep in the chalk hills below. My name's Mark Bennett. I'm an expert on the Cold War. And today we're at Dover Castle. You say castle there, obviously, Mark, but we'll soon discover that there's a lot more to see beneath the surface here. What are you going to show me? Today we're going to look at a regional seat of government located in the series of tunnels below Dover Castle. These go back to the Cold War, but Dover Castle has a lot of other layers of history. What makes it such an important site? Dover Castle is a fascinating site stretching back into history with occupations by the Romans building structures of the tallest Roman lighthouses situated within the castle, one of only three in the world. It's the tallest Roman structure in the UK, stretching on to developments in the 1100s where the castle is basically established and then within the 1200s with Henry II with the building of the Norman Keep and then his successors building the curtain walls which make up the main structure of the castle as we see it today with major refurbishments taking place in the Napoleonic period with the advent of artillery. The castle is prepared for the use of those weapons against an aggressor, but also prepared to defend itself against an aggressor with those weapons. And then we move into the Second World War, where the castle forms an important nodal point within the defence of the whole of this region. And then moving into the Cold War with the establishment of a protected accommodation underground for an element of government that hopes to survive a nuclear war. Okay, Mark, can you tell us where we're standing now? We've now entered the main entrance into Annex Level, which is a term used in the Cold War for this level of accommodation. And it's the sleeping accommodation level for the occupants of the regional seat of government. And how long did it take to build the tunnels that we're going to enter? Well, Annex Level, as the medical dressing station, was built in the Second World War by 171 Royal Engineers Tunnelling Corps, and it's built in chalk. 
So from their point of view, it's like tunneling in cheese. So they built a level like this in 1941 to 1942 very quickly, and they're very proud of it when they build it as well, and they actually produce a full report on how, on how this level, this medical dressing station level, is constructed. So I would estimate from the tunnelling records that it took approximately four or five months. Why build these tunnels here? So the annex level that we're standing in now is built as a medical dressing station, but the CHQ level that is below us below casemate level and below annex level, is built as early planning for the Allied retaking of occupied Europe. Operation Overlord. Overlord, yes. But Overlord evolves out of earlier planning. And the state of research that I've undertaken at the moment indicates that the CHQ level is constructed during early planning during Operation Roundup. Roundup is a plan which evolves into parts of Operation Overlord. So you've described the fact that these tunnels were effectively built for the preparation for the Allied retaking of Europe during World War II, and then, as time moves on, they are then repurposed during the Cold War. Yes, that's entirely correct. The annex level that we're in now, which is built as a medical dressing station, is reused as an accommodation level for the regional seat of government. And the combined HQ, the Second World War combined HQ, is reused as the main operational area for the regional seat of government. Well, let's go into those deeper levels if we can. Yes, we're going to go from annex level now down to dumpy level. Paused here for a second. The, what you can hear is one of the subsidiary ventilation fans on annex level, and each level has an independent ventilation system, and that's reused from Second World War machinery in the Cold War. The early part of the Cold War effectively reuses the site as it was as a combined HQ. What you can hear at this second is the ventilation equipment, which is still running. It's been running since the Second World War, and serves to ventilate and reduce the humidities within the complex. And we're standing by a grate which is into this whitewashed wall. Yes. It's probably about eight inches by eight inches, it's yes. square. And as you can hear, that's air rushing through. Yes, in the Second World War. And you can World feel War, it as well. Yes, absolutely. In the Second World War, the way that the tunnels are ventilated uses a system whereby you force air into the tunnels via a series of ducts, and that's what these small little grills and vents are. But the tunnels themselves are used as the return path for used air. So the recirculation path, when it goes round and round the building, as it would do during perhaps a gas attack or something like that, this level, Annex, has and gas filters specifically for that purpose. Those portent gas filters are reused, repurposed in the Cold War period to allow the filtration of radioactive fallout. And then in dumpy level in the early 1960s, portent filters are in that level as well. So each level are three main levels of tunnelling that comprise the regional seat of government. Each of those levels has its own independent filtration system. Well, we'll leave this World War II great and we'll head down a bit further and experience, hopefully, the Cold War filtration systems as we go deeper and deeper. Oh, it's getting a bit warmer down here. Why is that? Well, what we do currently is we dehumidify all the levels of the tunnels. So there's a dehumidification system running on this level, annex level, 
And that dehumidification system results in lower amounts of water in the air. But because of the way that this system works, it also introduces an element of heat. And that's exactly what you want for the preservation of the tunnels and also the artefacts which are on display down here. So what we're breathing is sort of warm but non-humid air. Yes. So you've walked effectively from the outside world into a sealed environment which is dehumidified and heated. And above our head is a Lamson tube system. This is a lot lower, so I have to really dip my head. Yes, this is a, basically an access shaft which takes you towards the Napoleonic spiral staircase, which is a double helix spiral staircase used for quickly accessing the casemate level. As I previously uh, said, yeah. casemate level is a combination for soldiers, so you'd need to get those soldiers in and out very quickly. Right. But we're going to make our way into the lift which now descends down into Dumpy. So we're on annex level, we're going to descend down into the what in the 1960s is, is termed as the regional seat of government's main operational area, Dumpy. Mm. So effectively, to summarise what we've done just now over a, over a couple of minutes, is that we've gone straight sort of downish at a maybe sort of like a 20 degree angle, and we sort of come up again, we've sort of gone through a more narrow tunnel, and now we're going to go into this lift in this more open area. An area where people who are going to use the lift can gather before the lift arrives and they go into it. So we're now standing in a rather echoey chamber. And it's a lot taller, it's probably about yes. well, don't forget that nine, ten foot tall. Yeah, like they've moved from a 1940s construction to a 1960s construction. If you're running the country, you want to have a bit more space in which to think and walk and and breathe, I suppose. Uh, well, you'll see better examples of that as in concept terms and when we discuss what a regional seat of government actually is when we get down into Dumpy. So we're going to call the lift now and we're going to descend down into Dumpy and at some point during our walkabout down there, we'll go into the largest chambers. And those largest chambers that are on Dumpy level are some of the biggest chambers that were ever constructed in chalk. And we're, we're now standing in the lift with approximately or 150 feet of uh, shaft below us. And it's actually <laughs> almost like we've stepped into a modern office lift. The it's got lift, mirrors behind yeah, us the lift and nice a, uh, sort of veneered wood panelling. The lift is a modern replacement. Right. The original RSG lift was replaced, I think, in the 1990s. And then this is a refurbishment of that refurbishment. A liquid crystal display telling yeah. us that we're yeah. arriving at dumpy level. Yeah, we've now descended D. approximately 150 feet, 170 feet down into dumpy level. Okay. And we're exiting out onto another crush hall, another lift hall. Yeah, similar um, to where we were just now. Yeah. So you're looking at a 1960s structure, but if we look off into the distance, you're looking into adits, driveways, if you like, tunnels, which are all 1942 43. And we're in Dumpy. Yes. But what does Dumpy actually stand for? Well, Dumpy is simply a name for this level. There are rumours which stem from probably the 1990s that Dumpy actually stands for something like deep underground military position yellow and stuff like that. If you actually look on any authentic plans, you'll find that none of the levels are yellow. And so you look back into the historical records as to why it, it's called Dumpy and you find that the Home Office required a way of navigating round the whole tunnel complex. And so they called the 
medical dressing station, annex, the annex to casemate. And dumpy probably comes from the original tunnelling of this level. When they dug it, they were tipping all the chalk out onto the Napoleonic castle dump. And they always referred to the CHQ being constructed on the level of the dump. So my understanding of why it's called dumpy is because it's built on the level of the castle dump. But who would have known about dumpy in the 1960s? Are we talking about a highly secretive underground place that most people wouldn't know about, just civil servants? In terms of secrecy, in the early 1960s, this site is exceedingly secret. If you look at the ministers and the civil servants who were involved in the planning and construction of these types of sites, you can clearly identify that very, very few individuals knew about the actual role and purpose of these sites in the 1960s. That was to change dramatically as various parties started finding out different types of information about the sites. Obviously, we're in a castle, which is a public access castle. So you've got people wandering around the site in the daytime who are just members of the public, and they're going to ask questions about what this site was and what it's used for now during the 1960s. And then in the mid-1960s, or slightly earlier than that, but the spies for peace break into one of these sites because these are distributed across the whole of the country. We're in Region 12 in the 1960s, and there are 12 civil defence regions within the UK. And the spies for peace break into a site outside London, and within that site they discover lots of documentation which they copy and then dispose of, and then they write a report and basically blow the story wide open. Because of events like that, the role and function of these sites changes. And by the end of the 1960s, these sites are functioning in a different way. We're exiting the uh, lift area, and we're now walking through a much lower series of of tunnels. Yes, I need to dip my head again here. this, This is all original construction for yeah. the CHQ. Three CHQs were built, and this is the best preserved one. Right. So even though the um, Portsmouth CHQ was the actual CHQ that was responsible for communications traffic for the Normandy invasions, this CHQ is the best preserved of them. A CHQ meaning Just combined saying, headquarters. Yes, yes. So in the Second World War, this is a combined headquarters, and it combines all of the various elements with an interest in the Allied retaking of occupied France. So that's naval interests, army interests, air force interests, civil interests to a minor degree, but mainly all of the military interests involved in that. And it's to give protected accommodations to the communications equipment. As we look up at this arching roof structure above us, about 30 feet above, Mark, and these cream walls, I can imagine this being a hive of activity The overarching question, obviously, and the main reason that we're down here is to talk about the Cold War. So would this have been an operations centre in case of a nuclear attack? Yes, precisely that. The concept behind the 1960s regional seat of government is to try and preserve an element of government that knows how to govern. What I mean by that is, is that the people who are staffing this establishment have long and established histories within the cabinet office, the home office, and within all of the various departments which make up central government. They have 
a long and useful experience of governance. So this would be the RSG. What is an RSG? A regional seat of government is a secure location or protected accommodation where an element of central government, and by that I mean an element of the cabinet office and the home office and all of their civil defence planning, can relocate to during a crisis, and in this case the crisis is a nuclear war, and have some chance of surviving that crisis. How long would they have been able to survive down here then? Well, these types of sites were very often provisioned and victualled for about a month. That's not that long, really, considering how long radioactivity would stay in the air after an explosion and, and the fallout. Radioactive fallout has a very intense level of output in the initial stages. But if you can keep yourself away from it for a few days you can much, much, much reduce the amount of radiation that you're exposed to. So if you can keep yourself away from that fallout for a few days, that fallout will have drastically reduced. If you can keep yourself underground and away from the fallout for a number of weeks, it dramatically reduces. So as long as you don't have further fallout, i.e. more weapons falling on the UK and producing more fallout, then the levels of radiation on the surface can drop to what would be termed in a war situation tolerable levels. That sounds a bit more promising. It sounds as though that this RSG could continue beyond that month after the initial impact. Well, you also have to bear in mind that this is a government facility. So, yes, there might be a month's worth of supplies here, but you are the government, you, you are the people who have control over, over any remaining resources. So you can, with a degree of ease, and obviously I say that in the context of a thermonuclear war where it's utter devastation on the surface, with a degree of ease you can get more supplies. Okay, well let's talk a little bit about the filtration system for the air that these people would breathe. And perhaps you can show me the 1960s version of the filtration system which we saw above, which was World War II. So this filtration system was installed World War II? Yes. And so the original Porton filters from the Second World War, which originally stood in the area that we're in now, would have been reused in the Cold War period, in the early 1960s, to provide particulate filtering against radioactive fallout. Radioactive fallout isn't a gas, it's, it's particulate, it's lumps of things, even though that might be very fine dust, you can filter it out. So during an attack, you would physically turn this system off because you don't want to be bringing highly radioactive air into the tunnels and clogging up your filters. So when the radioactivity levels have fallen to a significant degree and the levels of dust in the air are much reduced post-nuclear strike, you would then engage the ventilation system and bring in, as I mentioned before, the 20% of fresh air that you require to ventilate and provide air and fresh air and oxygen to the participants on each level. Okay, we find ourselves in a slightly quieter environment. We're now back into the main operational area of the RSG. 
We're in regional seat of government 12 in the 1960s, so there are 12 civil defence regions. Who would be inside this regional seat of government, like this one underneath Dover Castle? Army, Navy, Air Force, plus other figures? Yes, but they would be tailored specifically to each RSG as well. So we're near a port, so there would be a naval element in this RSG. We have a regional oil authority in the casemate levels above us in the 1950s to the early 1960s. So they tailored the staff and the skill sets. What's the staffing like? How many people are we talking about underground? In the 1960s, the staffing complement of a site like this would have been in the order of 400 plus. They occupy the site prior to any weapons falling on the UK. They hunker down and they ride their way through the attack to emerge after the nuclear weapons have fallen, after radioactivity levels have fallen to a sufficient degree that your wartime dose is acceptable and that the site can then start functioning to reform an element of government and provide some degree of succour and aid to the survivors post-strike. It's very difficult to not then get drawn into the situation that's carrying on above ground during a scenario like that and the complete devastation that would be taking, taking place on the surface. On into, a, into another sort of low-hanging uh, tunnel and this is on the way to the BBC studio. Yes, I think you're probably getting the idea uh, of being able to recognise which date parts of the tunnels this come from. This feels 1940s today. Yes, this is directly 1940s. And we're right on the periphery for the grid complex that makes up the dumpy level. And we're going to walk down this corridor and we're going to uh, dive into this little room on the left-hand side. So you'll hear me clonk the electricity on. This is a separate dehumidified space. So originally the room would have been panelled with acoustic panels. But because the dehumidifier's now been in here all 15 years or so, 10 years, the room is much more stable and the panels are kept in secure storage, awaiting the day that this, this studio complex is refurbished for display. It feels drier to my nostrils, it's I would us. say. It's drier than when we came in. So we've come into a room which is longer than the one just in front of us through the door, which has got the glass where you could see a presenter sitting to do the news, potentially. Yes, in... there was a presenter in there, and that presenter was actually talking. I think you can safely assume that the world as you know it has changed entirely. And what would they have had on the script? Those types of scripts, which were available to us, um, many aren't, indicate that in the initial stages of a nuclear thermonuclear exchange, the BBC were highly involved in announcing that there was going to be an attack. And sites like this are used to broadcast announcements that the UK populace should prepare for a war. If there were a strike, and we're looking into the cubicle there where the presenter would have been sitting with their script, what do you think the mood would have been like inside this room? I think it's safe to say that the guys who, who trained up in these types of sites were fully aware of the enormity of the situation that they were going to place themselves in and fully aware of had this gone hot, had this site actually started to become live, that their situation was dire and that the nation's situation was dire. So I think to say there was a degree of tension would be a gross understatement. 
it would have been absolute chaos. Approximately 170 feet above our heads, it's total mayhem. Having gone through that corridor, which was black and white with some graffiti, I think, from the past, what do you think uh, Dumpy Level does for people today? What makes it unique? People find it a fascinating tour. They literally start the tour thinking, oh my God, it's just an empty building, because that's what they see. But as you walk around, it's largely a bare work site. So people's initial impressions are one of, oh, okay, maybe there's not so much here. And yes, that is true. There are something like 50 rooms downstairs on dumpy level. And uh, during its operational life, there were probably 80. There were a lot more internal dividing walls that have now gone during this building upgrade period. But what brings it to life is the way that we describe the building, the way that we describe how the building is being used, what its functions were, the situation under which it was going to be used is traumatic and dire and a very difficult story to tell because you don't want to upset people. So once you start telling the story, once you start placing characters, people, events into the building, once you start describing what took place in those rooms, you start building a story. You start understanding why the building is there. You start understanding what it was for and you understand what those people in the building were doing. And you also understand an aspect which is also very disturbing about how you as an individual would be dealing with this situation, how you and your family might be dealing with this situation. So we try to make light of the, of the situation during the tours, but at the end of the day, we are dealing with a difficult subject. But people come away from our tours, hopefully, and seemingly through the feedback we get, having thankful for the, yeah, having learned something and thankful for the way that we go through the topic. We don't try and avoid issues, but also the broader political, social context within which this site was operating. I guess they also leave grateful that the Cold War is over. Yes. It's, it's an odd thing to say, but we won. The way that defence policy and the way that um, NATO and Europe and all of the other concerns operated over all of the years post-1945 uh, led effectively to the collapse of the Soviet economy. So... Thankfully, this building was never used. Thankfully, the emergency preparedness that the Cabinet Office and the Home Office made was never put into practice. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more information on Dover Castle and Dumpy Level members' tours, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we're at Rest Park in Bedfordshire, to discover the secrets of its recently excavated root house. I did come and visit while the archaeologists were here and it was quite fascinating to see what they did discover. There was quite a lot of brick and stone rubble with some quite clear edges to it. It looked like foundations. Thanks for listening. See you next time.